Welcome to Fishman Radio. I'm Bryce Tapp, your host, and today my conversation with Fishman's Executive Director, Brian Sutliff. We'll be discussing the organization of American states and its two topics, election monitoring and assistance and public safety. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Bryce. Thank you very much. I hope that you, your family, and obviously all of our delegates, our advisors, and staff are doing well in our broader communities in the midst of the uncertainty and upheaval that so many are facing. We at Fishman just really want to reiterate our commitment to our educational mission and to working with our broader Fishman community any chance we get, both in person and remotely. Thank you so much for that, Brian. I appreciate it. So our first topic in the Organization of American States is election monitoring and assistance. So um, if you could give us sort of a brief background as to what, when the delegates receive their background guide and when they go into committee, what this will look like um, and what does it look like in the context of the OAS? Great. Thank you for those questions, Bryce. Election monitoring and assistance is a topic that we actually had a few years ago, I believe at Fishman 40 in the OAS. And it's one that's really vital because we want to ensure that in all countries, elections are conducted in a fair and impartial manner, that all votes are counted properly, that there aren't unfair or discriminatory barriers to the participation. There aren't logistical hurdles that can be overcome. You know, obviously you have sometimes people who live in very remote areas, but they still need to be able to cast their ballots whenever they're eligible. And we want to make sure that those are tallied properly, they're provided properly, that obviously in elections around the organization, throughout the organization of American states, 34 countries, that we are avoiding political intimidation, political violence, repression that could prevent people from casting their ballots. And like I said, from ballots being perhaps discarded, tampered with, or not counted. And of course, in the context of COVID-19, how do we properly conduct elections to where people are safe, and free to cast their ballots and cast their votes in the ways that they most want. Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of attention devoted within the United States to recent primary elections in states like Wisconsin or Georgia, a number of other states where there was a lot of in-person voting on the actual primary day, and sometimes even having cases of COVID-19 that they believe were results of people waiting in line for hours in a number of cases in these states. Well, what about the Dominican Republic? They voted just under two weeks ago, and there are arguments and there's evidence already emerging that in those crucial elections in the DR that there may now be an escalation in cases of COVID-19. But we want people to be able to vote. We want them to be able to vote safely. We want people to be able to vote very effectively and efficiently, and also obviously protect their health so that if their candidates won or lost, if their parties that they were supporting won or lost, they are there to be a part of the results and they're there to continue to struggle for the results and the justice and the economic distribution, the environmental quality of life that they feel is essential for their societies. And We've obviously seen in a lot of countries in the OAS 
times when there were very few elections or elections were very much skewed. There were obviously a number of dictatorships. There have been authoritarian governments throughout many different countries in the OAS. And we obviously want to avoid any return to that. So we want to ensure that when there are concerns about election irregularities, if there are concerns about vote counts, et cetera, that those are being addressed properly. And for one thing, a lot of those are being prevented in the first place, that there's clear monitoring of the polling stations by impartial observers that are not invested in, well, this party needs to win, or I prefer this particular candidate, but their concern is everyone who's eligible to vote gets to vote and their vote counts. That these are, like I said, impartial observers who are not committed to any particular political outcome other than it was free, it was fair, it was open and transparent. And those are some of the issues that really, really are critical. And the OAS does have some real experience in the wake of some of the civil wars in Central America in the 1980s and in the early 1990s, conducting elections in Haiti and you know a number of other countries. And some of the elections have been more successful than others. And so part of it's also learning the lessons from the more successful elections, also learning the painful lessons from the ones where it didn't go as planned or where the outcomes were not were disparaged in some manner or other with some legitimate concerns and grievances and how can we do better going forward because when people vote it's always to me an act of critical civic responsibility but also of being invested in the society and then to see people willing to sacrifice in some cases their own health to go vote in the midst of this pandemic is both inspiring, but it's also tragic because they shouldn't have to worry about exposure to COVID-19. They shouldn't be put in situations where it's dangerous to their health in whatever country we're talking about here within the OAS or globally. And yet they still want to know that their voice matters, their voice will be heard, and their participation is valued. So that is a really essential part of this topic that is different from when we had it, say, two years ago, is that now in the context of this pandemic, voting is, in some cases, a potentially risky act, and not just because of your political preferences, but just in the fact that it could be an area of transmission of the virus. And how do we protect the voters? How do we also protect the election monitors? And Because they will be there in these polling places in many cases or hours, if not several days in some instances, and then also the counting and the safeguarding of the ballots. How do we make sure that they're all safe and protected? Thanks, Brian. Those are absolutely vital concerns that, you know, the delegates, I hope, and I'm sure they will address, especially as they as we continue to learn more about the ongoing pandemic, not only in the United States, but all across the Americas as well. And so, you know, to kind of wrap up, this conversation about election monitoring and assistance um, within the OAS. I was wondering if you could speak to the role that the OAS has had in election security. Um, You know, in the past, you know, elections were done on paper ballots, but, you know, all around the world, that's not necessarily the case in every state in the Americas as well. There are many different forms of actually submitting your vote. And so could you speak to the OAS's involvement in election security? Um, if, if any. Thank you for that series of questions, Bryce. Yes, the, the OAS finds that its roles within election security and monitoring become increasingly complex 
because of this proliferation of different voting systems, which you could have different voting systems within the same country in some cases. Certainly within the United States, each state could have its own separate system of voting. And actually, you can have different voting systems. Certainly, you have very different ballots between counties within the same county, depending on your precincts and districts and all of you know the systems that they use. And one of the issues that's arisen, and not just within the United States, but in a number of countries, is sometimes rolling out new voting technologies without really having tested them before an election actually takes place or with potential security breaches, et cetera. Uh, you know, obviously, that's been an argument that's been made in a number of countries. We also, of course, need to be aware, too, that there are going to be a number of elections later this year and in early 2021 or are scheduled because some of them have been postponed. In fact, even, you know, votes like the one in the DR was postponed at least for a while, but they still held it in early July. But let's take, for instance, voting in Bolivia. That could be really fraught because of what happened last October and early November with Evo Morales and then him leaving the country and would he face prosecution, et cetera. Uh, I'm sure you saw just very recently in the news that the president of Bolivia, Janine Agnes, has recently tested positive for COVID-19, as have at least eight other members of the cabinet and ruling government in Bolivia. And you've certainly seen a number of legislators in Brazil and a number of other countries testing positive. Bolivia is supposed to have elections later this year because when presidents or interim president Añez took over in November of 2019, it was, she did have to state right up front that it, there would be, it would be a caretaker government and interim government and there would be elections which have been postponed to some degree. And of course, one of the other issues is we want to make sure that we don't have indefinite postponements, but we also have safe elections while we're still dealing with COVID-19. And of course, cases in Bolivia have recently been rising as they have throughout much of South America. And like I said, at least nine upper members of the government, including the president, have recently tested positive as has, I think, half of the cabinet, basically, at this point, in just the last week or so, tested positive. We also, of course, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has tested positive for COVID-19 recently. We've had a number of other uh, major leaders. We've certainly had Justin Trudeau and his wife in Canada, you know, with concerns there. We had just today the governor of Oklahoma uh, announced positive test results for COVID-19. And you're seeing this in countries all throughout the region. And it could be even at the local municipal level. You've seen election monitors. There was at least one election monitor from the OAS in the Dominican Republic that has tested positive for COVID-19. And you, what if you have all your poll workers and election monitors become positive or there's an outbreak? Do you just suddenly not report results from that area? Do you shut down polling stations and precincts, et cetera? And you have, you know, a city like, say, Louisville, Kentucky, where they reduced it to, you know, they were basically voting at the stadium in some cases uh, for where, you know, the University of Louisville plays football. You know, is that... Is that the most efficient situation? You know, are you going to have soccer stadiums in South America where you cast your ballots? And for major cities, are you going to reduce it to just a few to try to prevent outbreaks of COVID-19? But are you then also in any way potentially disenfranchising people who want to cast their votes? So just a lot of concerns there and ensuring that the process is fair, free, 
open and transparent. Thank you very much. And I think those, you know, that, that statement that you just said about free, fair, transparent um, elections, it also goes also for our very next topic in the OAS, public security and the role that the OAS has in conducting those policies around um, the two continents. And so I was wondering if you could just give our delegates a, an overview of what public security looks like for the OAS. Great. Thank you, Bryce. Public security is a new topic for us, and so it is one that it's really essential, and this will be done as well in the background guide for the topic, that it's clear the pillars of public security, because there are really five that the Department of Public Security through the OAS focuses on, and that department was founded in 2005 by the membership of the OAS to focus on, like I said, five particular areas or pillars. So, First is on crime overall, crime and the commission of delinquent acts, in a sense. Then you have another one on policing, which, yes, is tied into trying to prevent and punish crime, but also the ways in which police forces operate, which obviously that's been a a huge topic in so many countries for quite a while, and obviously renewed attention within the United States, Canada, number of places in the world, uh, particularly as related to perhaps racial disparities in policing, but we can see a lot of others as well. And so that's a critical one. You have then also a focus on the role of penitentiaries and correctional facilities and how they're governed, because that's really essential, particularly in the light of something like COVID-19, where we've seen major outbreaks in prisons. We've seen prison rioting because prisoners have legitimate concerns that their health could be imperiled, as well as the prison staff, the guards, you know, all the correctional officers, the psychologists or anybody else who works in there to try to work with prisoners and inmates to assist them and to, you know, see some of the changes that occur there. You also have another pillar focused on arms trafficking and the regulation of firearms. And then the final one is on actually mine removal and mine clearance, because that's still an issue in several countries throughout the region. But those are the real five pillars behind public security. And that's obviously, those will be organizing principles for the background guide itself for this particular topic. But it was, I think, really essential to be clear that those are the main areas we'll be focusing on. So thank you for laying out those five areas that public security deals with in the OAS. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate more on three of those. So crime, um, policing and police reform, and then also incarceration among populations and also, uh, and also prison policy um, for the OAS. Sure. Thank you very much, Bryce. Those areas obviously all go together in a number of ways because you know, clearly the police are involved in trying to prevent and punish crime. Those who are convicted fairly and in you know some instances sadly unfairly are often imprisoned incarcerated in various capacities so we see a lot of you know an an overlap of those areas themselves but there are distinct elements first and foremost a number of crimes are clearly not reported a number of crimes are never really fully investigated and or solved and we have seen Increases in violent crimes in a number of places. There have been some 
statistics even within the United States in some major cities. This year, we've certainly seen crime on the rise in a number of other areas. We have seen some places have more success in reducing crime and violent crime and you know maybe the different approaches that they take. So that's really important to consider. And also the impacts of those crimes on people, whether or not they're solved, whether or not someone is sentenced to prison or they have parole or rehabilitation, or even if you have some form of restorative justice or whatever the consequences may be of all this, or maybe they're acquitted, et cetera, you still have the people who suffered the criminal actions themselves and what is done to address their concerns, what is done to help them not be a victim of crime down the road, what is done to just in general, lower the incidence of crime itself and and how is crime reported? How is it in fact investigated? Uh, are the statistics valid? You know, to how, what degree are they underreported? Are there certain types of crimes that are less reported than others? Are there people who are specifically targeted for crimes? You know, some countries have hate crime legislation and other countries do not for, for or they may change the categorization for hate crimes. So I think there's a lot of really critical elements there to consider, regardless of whether anyone goes to jail or whatever. There's still also the victims of the crimes themselves. And some would also argue you're trying to get to the root causes of the crimes and why someone would commit criminal acts in the first place. Then in terms of addressing the training of the police forces, the budgets for the police forces, their orientation within the specific communities, do they take a more cooperative approach with their communities? Some police forces are seen as more combative in some cases. Obviously, some have been labeled as occupying forces for a whole variety of reasons. And, and there are certainly disagreements and controversies about those designations. But how well do the police forces work with the communities that they are serving and within which they are embedded? How do they recruit new officers and new personnel within the police force? Are those police forces reflecting a fair gender composition? Do you have an all-male police force or do you have a significant number of female officers? Do you have female commanders? Do you have you know, female and perhaps even people who are perhaps non-binary in their identification or orientation or just who are traditionally been marginalized, are they included in the police force? Are the police forces themselves making sure that they are representing also an accurate racial distribution or ethnic distribution of the population? Are they in fact working with their communities in an appropriate and sustainable manner? So those are all really critical and then you get obviously into penitentiaries and correctional facilities and addressing concerns about prisons and other correctional facilities in terms of the ways that they are constructed in the ways in which they're governed, the health concerns that are embedded within a prison system, particularly in the midst of a pandemic, because prisoners still are entitled under various constitutions, laws, and international agreements to healthcare. And particularly, we've seen this previously with things like tuberculosis and the various you know, mutating forms of tuberculosis, such as multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis. So we could see this in the context of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, and any ongoing mutations of this particular novel coronavirus that 
most prisoners will ultimately be released and back into society. Whatever health problems they have, if they're communicable, will then go right back into those societies. Even after people have served their time or fulfilled the sentence, whatever the designations people want to use, there are ultimately health concerns there. And are prisoners being treated humanely within the prisons themselves, even outside of the context of this pandemic, and then exacerbated within it? You know, obviously, there are also arguments, too, about whether prisons are there primarily to punish, whether they're to rehabilitate, then, you know, the designation of them, the, the construction of them, the orientation within them. And so I think that those three areas overlap so much in terms of crime, policing, and then the correctional system and facilities themselves, and really focusing on those. I do want to obviously remind all of our listeners about the two other pillars there about arms trafficking, arms regulation, as well as mine clearance and mine action. And we will examine some of those areas within the background guide, but those first three pillars really overlap in so many important ways, but have their own distinctive elements too, that there's a lot to discuss. There's a lot to deliberate right there. Thank you, Brian. And I know myself and all the listeners and future delegates look forward to reading the background guide to see these topics even more um, expanded upon. You know, before we close our conversation, I just wanted to ask if you had any parting advice for the delegates who may be coming to the OAS for the first time or perhaps returning delegates um, who, or returning staff who are going to be approaching public security for the first time. First and foremost, obviously, I, I wish all of our delegates advisors, our, our staff and broader fishermen community, the best, particularly in the midst of some rather uncertain and challenging times. Definitely something that I think is critical for the OAS, definitely, I think, reflected as well as the African Union Peace and Security Council, but is just good research overall is try to find new sources from the various countries that you're representing. Try to find a really good variety of sources that are also not just from the United States. Uh, you know, whenever possible, if you do have the ability to read in those other languages represented within the OAS or these various other committees, that's always just such an advantage and a benefit in so many ways. But really digging into some of the, the authentic research and the deliberations within those countries, because unfortunately, even though we are, the United States is directly part of the OAS and we are part of the Americas as a continent, we don't always get as much news about some of these other countries and some of these communities. And so it's just really incumbent upon delegates to be both broad and deep in the uh, their approaches to the research and to the deliberations. And so we really do think it'll be of enormous benefit to have those approaches built in that you're looking for non-American sources of news at times as well, and, and really ones that reflect some of the deliberations within these governments, as well as obviously official sources from the governments that they're representing. Thank you so much, Brian, and I thank you for this conversation. I know our entire Fishman family is going to appreciate um, all the wisdom that you've shown us today. So thank you so much, and I hope, you, I hope that you stay well. Thank you, Bryce, and it's always a pleasure to be a part of Fishman Radio. And again, to all of our delegates, advisors, staff, our, our entire Fishman community, we really look forward to 
being a part of your lives whenever possible in person and remotely. So thank you. Be well, be safe. And we can't wait to connect again in person and remotely as soon as possible. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fishman Radio. You can find today's episode and many others at our website, fishman.org, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Subscribe and share today.